0: Uh, well, awesome. Should we uh, should we get started here? Uh, you know, just wanted to thank you again for joining, and you know, I'm super excited to have this webinar with you and talk more about AVP. Um, I'll let you introduce yourself, but just wanted to tee up the conversation here. Um, I'm Asif, I'm a co-founder of Office Hours, where we do a lot of interview prep and recruiting for venture capital, private equity, and growth equity firms. Uh, and we love having different people on our webinars to talk about their investing roles and their paths into the buy side investing. Um, Alex in particular has a phenomenal background. Uh, you know, he started his career in investment banking at Morgan Stanley in the technology group. Uh, later, worked at Iconic where he did growth equity investing, and then he joined Advanced Venture Partners. Um, and I actually worked at Advanced when I was doing private equity. Uh, but Alex joined there as, as like a junior to mid level investor, worked his way all the way up to partners. So we're super excited to have him. And thanks for joining us, Alex.
1: Thanks so much for having me and um, thanks for everyone uh, in attendance today for for taking the time.
0: Awesome. Awesome. So, you know, I wanted to structure this con- as a conversation and touch on three major topics. You know, I wanted to hear more about your background. I wanted to hear more about AVP in general. Um, and then I also wanted to hear about the role that you guys are hiring for. And, you know, we can save some time at the end here for some Q&A, but thought we could spend 20 or 30 minutes just you and I chatting and then save 10 or 15 minutes for Q&A if that works. That's perfect. Let's dive in. Awesome. Awesome. So, Alex, would love to hear more about your background. How did you first break into banking?
1: Yeah, great great question. Um, it seems like so long ago. But uh, so I, uh, uh, I'm Alex Christ. I grew up in Des Moines, Iowa in the Midwest, um, attended the University of Iowa, uh, double majored in finance and accounting. Um, and as uh, maybe maybe a lot of you on this call, uh, being from a non-target, uh, the path into investment banking was um, non-linear, um, and sort of required a lot of hustle and lining things up to to uh, increase the probability of success and in breaking into the industry. Um, so I'll touch on my experience a little bit. So um, uh, when I was in school, and I knew I wanted to go into banking. Um, and wanted to pursue that as my, my career first job out of college. I basically had three goals that were subsets of each other. So one was just to break into banking. Um, two was to get to the coast and either be in New York City at an investment bank or in San Francisco. Um, and three, um, in a perfect world, everything lines up, um, have the opportunity to be in a in a tech um, tech group. Um, I was fortunate. Uh, uh, as I thought about those things, I realized there were two things I needed to get um. done really well. One, I had to be the best interviewer that I could be and practice as much as possible and sort of not have any excuse for not being prepared for things. And two, um, had to network um, and create opportunities um, the best that I could. Um, We were really fortunate in Iowa. We've got a dedicated organization within the business school um, that both helps Students prep and prepare to get into the investment banking career path and also manages our alumni network, um, which has had been a and continues to be at the school of a phenomenal and amazing resource um, and really spent a couple years doing two things. One, um, becoming the best interviewer that I could be. Uh, a lot of late nights with my friends who also went into banking in our business school, doing mock interviews, doing all those sort of things that I'm sure a lot of folks on this call uh, remember quite well or are going through right now as well um and then i think the second thing the most important thing was um doing as much networking as i can to um uh, to break in the door and um and have the opportunity to interview with with groups and with uh, with uh, investment banks that sort of fit the the three goals that I outlined. And you know, Iowa had a great alumni network in Chicago, um, a little less built out alumni network on the coast and where I wanted to be. But you know, my strategy was always, um, you know, meet meet who was in the network. Um, leave a good impression, ask good questions and but also be really direct in terms of honest about like where I wanted to be and, and uh, that I wanted to be out on the coast and in a tech group if possible and I think, you know, people were were great about sort of making that next introduction so I could continue sort of maximizing the chance to have um, interview conversations. Um, I ended up recruiting for for my junior internship, Um, you know, was fortunate enough to receive a number of offers. Um, at um, at bulge bracket banks um, through that process, and, and including um, Goldman in New York, and then um, Morgan Stanley in their tech group um, down on Sand Hill Road out here in the Bay Area, and you know, given all of my goals, this was twenty eleven. Um, you know, this was sort of the beginning of the the you know the the twenty ten software market. Um, I. Uh, it was sort of a no brainer for me to go to more and have the chance to be in their tech group. So was a summer analyst, um, was fortunate enough to earn a return offer um, and started in 2012 as a as an analyst there and uh, and was able to sort of realize the school of breaking into banking.
0: That's awesome. That's awesome. It's uh, really impressive that, you know, from IELTS, which tr- traditionally doesn't have on campus recruiting, you're able to break into and receive offers at Two of the top tech groups on the street, uh, which must have required a ton of hustle and prep work, but just goes to show, you know, if you if you put in the work, a lot of great goals are possible for sure. And, you know, as someone with a banking background as well, I think it's a phenomenal place to kind of hone in a skill set, you know, at 21, 22 years old, you're working on all these transactions, you're doing so much deal experience, financial modeling, but you're also interfacing with very senior people, which I think sets you up really well to do a career, whether it's in private equity, venture capital, or even in corporate. So, you know, that being said, what led you to go to your next role at Iconic and pursue VC and growth equity versus, you know, a lot of people will pursue private equity or, or different roles?
1: Yeah, no, it's, it's a good question. And, and, you know, uh, I'll echo on what you, you said. I think, you know, nowadays, uh, there's a lot of different opportunities for people coming out of school, but I still think the banking route is amazing. You learn a lot of hard skills, you learn a lot of soft skills. And I think the prep, it gives you to then be able to go a bunch of different ways in your, in your career afterwards. Um, um, is still amazing, you know. As as the world continues to change and, and industries continue to evolve, so um, I spent two years at Morgan Stanley. Our group was sort of, uh, at least at the time, it was two years and out. Um, there wasn't a lot of promotion internally, so you you put in two years of hard work and then you go into private equity or growth or or become an operator. Um, And so I started out exploring a bunch of different industries, like a lot of folks in banking, thinking about private equity and and public market investing and and venture and growth. And um, as I continue to learn more and sort of have conversations with people in the space, um, venture and growth really stuck out to me um, in terms of a fit for what I, I felt like was exciting. And for me personally, I feel like Private market investing at that earlier stage in in venture and growth um, is really intellectually stimulating um, for what I think is is interesting where I thought my I think my skill set is, and what I mean by that is I think um, companies at that stage the diligence you do and what you have to learn is kind of this perfect mix of qualitative and quantitative analysis. And I love that. Um, You know, the companies aren't so early. They're not seed stage businesses where you're just betting on a founder and idea. They're not large public companies or large or later end growth stage companies where, you know, even though founder and qualitative aspects matter, a lot of it, the analysis is quantitative and sort of skewed towards that side of things. You know, when you're a series A, a series B company, it's about um, looking at all of those different factors whether it's unit economics and financial performance on the qualitative side to competitive landscape founder quality management team quality on the the qualitative side and, and being able to like for every different company it's a little bit different and having the challenge of being able to weight all of those different things um, and figure out whether you can get comfortable to want to make an investment and so um, I was fortunate enough once I once I found that area um, uh, to be the place I wanted to go into after banking, um, I um, received an offer and joined Iconic Capital in their very early days. So I was the sixth person on the team. Um, I know they've grown and you know what they've done there um, over the last decade or so has been incredible. Um, you know there were two partners at the time. I was the fourth associate. There was no one in the middle. Um, it was a great experience just because we were running at a bunch of different things. Um, uh, investing not only in software, but a, a, a number of different asset classes, and I think I was there a little over a year, um, but I think I learned as much in a year there as I did in, in two years of banking, if not um, way more. Um, you know, the team there is fantastic, and, and I'm sure everyone sees their name um, all the time in headlines and investment um, summaries today. Um you know, I I'll might go a step further fra- from your question and, you know, I was, uh, you know, about a year into Iconic having a great experience, um, was fortunate enough through Connections to meet uh, my two colleagues who started AVP in 2015. Um, I met them right as they were starting the funds looking for their, um, you know, their first junior investor, first member of the team um, and loved the, you know, sort of the unique aspect of the capital, which I know we're going to get to in a little bit and, and sort of the opportunity to be, you know, uh, part of a small team um, from day one um, and, and made the jump there. So joined... AVP in 2015. And um, as Asif mentioned, um, you know, have been fortunate enough to, um, you know, grow through the ranks and, and, um, you know, uh, be brought in to the partnership last year.
0: That's awesome. That's amazing. It's a a super quick trajectory to partner on your end. So very impressive. And just wanted to touch on, you know, post-banking when you evaluated VC and growth. And you mentioned it was a mix of qualitative and quantitative analysis, And, you know, I just wanted to to echo those sentiments, right? Because I I worked in traditional buyout private equity, and I also worked on the growth side as well. And I can tell you, uh, buyout private equity is very different from growth. It's it's so financial engineering heavy. You're buying all these super mature companies that have proven business models. They have all this cash flow. And so there's a lot of numbers to analyze, right? Starting with revenue, going down to through the COGS, through the OPEX, getting down to EBITDA, getting down to cash flow. There's every single line item you could do hundreds of analyses for. And so when you buy these companies, they're not growing 100% a year. Uh, They're they're already mature. And so when you buy them, you you put the debt on them, you do all this rigorous financial analyses, and you generate this return. On the complete other end of the spectrum on venture capital, there's absolutely no numbers at all sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) There might not be a product. There might not be revenue. There might be just two people in in a garage. And, and you know, I wanted to touch on why you went specifically towards this later stage venture and growth, which you said is a mix of, you know, right in between that qualitative and quantitative analysis. It's not rigorous line item manipulation and it's not just investing in ideas. So can you touch a little bit more on the growth side of things and what makes that unique?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, I, you know, what I think is 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 unique at that stage and and why i was excited about you know, going into that industry after after investment banking was um it is that that mix of of uh of competencies that you're trying to evaluate in an investment. You know, me personally, I'm not a, I'm not an operator. I don't know if I could get comfortable just doing a bunch of, you know, early seed stage meetings and trying to, you know, see 15 years down the line of what a business is going to look like without a lot of numbers. I like numbers. I like data. I'm, I'm, I'm a data-driven person and a data-driven decision maker. But to your point, to see if like also uh, wasn't interested in that being the only uh, focus of my job. And uh, l- like you might have in private equity or in the public markets. And so um, what I, uh, you know, what I think is really exciting about growth is you've got these businesses that have proven business models, have, you know, tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue. And so you can, you can look at data all day, you can look at, you um, uh, you know the models, the unit economics, all of those sort of things. But it's not the only part of the answer um, because these businesses they they haven't gotten to their end game. They haven't gotten to the exit either. And other things matter, whether it's competitive landscape, whether it's TAM, whether it's the ability of the founders to hire and upgrade their management team um, a- at the right time and in the right way. Um, um, I think it's that that combination of uh, you needing to there, there being a bunch of different boxes you have to get comfortable with, and 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 they they're all different things that I think is is exciting about growth, and and you know it's not it's not going to be the right thing for everyone. Um, you know I think there's some people, some of my smarter uh, friend, smartest friends are you know PE and and hedge fund folks who just love to be in the numbers all day, and some of my other friends who are, who I think are incredible or, you know, they're picking out seed stage founders all day. Um, but I think this for the right person, if you like a little bit of both of that, um, late stage venture and growth tend to be, uh, I think, is a, a perfect asset class.
0: Awesome. Awesome. I tend to agree. Uh, I, I think it's a phenomenal place to invest in. And, you know, that brings me to my next question. I would love to talk more about AVP and your type of investment style. So maybe just to start, what makes AVP unique?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm um, excited to talk about the fund. So, you know, I'll 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 sort of focus on one of the the qualities that I think makes us unique relative to a lot of other funds out there, and and to see if you know a bit about this, having been in advance. Um, but uh, uh, AVP um, is uh, our capital is evergreen, and it's evergreen because we have one long term um, single limited partner. Um, that we partnered with since day one, and have continued to, you know, be our sole um, capital partner um, throughout the life of AVP um, and well into the future. Um, so that um, that LP is a is a, a hundred year old um, family held holding company um, in New York called Advance, um, where where Asif worked um, um, before he he started office hours. Um, it, it's a really incredible business. So it's a it's a multi generational multi-billion dollar um, group of operators who over the generations have um, invested in, operated and grown, you know, really iconic um, media and technology companies. Um, You guys, anyone on the call can go check out their website, but today the assets include um, Condé Nast in in the media space, um, it includes stakes in some of the biggest cable operators and content producers um, in the United States and in the world. Um, it I- includes Reddit, um, the social network. It includes Iron Man if you are into triathlons and it includes um, uh, Turnitin.com that you pr- everyone probably had to deal with uh, back in college and, and while they were in school. And that's an incredible organization and what but what they're really good at is m- long-term, Operating a, a concentrated set of companies that they own, either a large portion of or own outright, and, and scale over a very long time. Um, where we came into play is um, in our, in in 2015, um, as we were starting AVP, um, we partnered with Advance to be um, their exposure into venture and. Um, Uh, And growth investments in the verticals around this space. So you know they've they've got a massive amount of capital in the holding company. A lot of it's concentrated in sort of long term and uh, long held assets, Um, but they saw the opportunity to take some of that capital and diversify it and and get exposure to you you know this really excited exciting asset class and and sort of the tech space and tech enabled space um, Mm -hmm. in general. you know what? What I'd say is unique. Uh, unlike other funds that may have concentrated capital, is that we're set up like a traditional fund. So we've got a um, a fund structure. We have committed capital um, from advance. Um, we are financial returns driven. So our goal is to find great founders that we can partner with and generate um, long-term returns on our capital rather than be strategic capital. Um, and we make decisions and can move as quickly as traditional funds. So we look like a normal venture capital or growth fund to the founders that we back. Our our investment committee is our partnership plus a few members of the, the family group of the holding company. Um, and um, we're able to move quickly, make, make decisions and, and, and be very nimble. Um,
0: And Alex, I just wanted to uh, jump in here for a second. Yeah, absolutely. Just to appreciate the significance of that, you know, it's like you have this one LP, which is, you know, Advance. And Advance operates billions of dollars of companies. And they have like large stakes in public companies like Charter. They have outright ownerships in large private companies like Turnitin, which you know yep. we acquired for around $2 billion a couple of years ago. And then they realized back in 2015 when AVP started is that they want more exposure to the venture side of things. Yep. And that is specifically AVP is a dedicated venture fund that is funded by advance. But it is completely standalone and returns driven. So you're not really investing in companies from a strategic angle. It's not a corporate venture capital firm. It is a returns-oriented standalone venture capital fund. Do I have that right? Exactly.
1: So we don't um we don't have to get buy-in from a business group to do a deal. We don't have to check the box from a strategic angle. We're really thought of a way as as a um as a Way to take some of their the the organization and advances capital and put it into these venture and growth stage businesses to generate um, attractive returns. Um, I'd say you know what's been really exciting for us with this structure in terms of uh, in addition to having a really close partner who's been amazing um, is also that. you know, they are very, they've got a very long-term outlook and they're very stable capital. So we, uh, a few things in that we don't have to fundraise, which is amazing. We get to spend all of our time being investors, which I think, you know, similar to founders not loving to fundraise. I don't think there's a lot of investors out there who love to fundraise and and love to be able to focus as much of their time on making great investments and partnering with great founders. Um, And I think it's also, you know, as especially as everyone knows, the venture market has um, has has um, experienced some shocks in in the last year or so as valuations have changed as the the market environment has changed and having that stable um, capital base that that um, doesn't have doesn't have to be rea- as reactive to um, those market dynamics um, I think is an advantage as we go into the next couple years where um, where you know I think the venture market will be. Um, will be not the same as it was uh you know 2 years ago with uh with all the frothiness of 2021
0: totally totally it's 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 a huge advantage to not have to be worried about fundraising especially during market cycles you know everyone's talking about an impending recession inflation and interest being so high a flight of capital into various asset classes and maybe venture will get hit but you know you all don't have to worry about that at all and you know similarly your portfolio companies benefit from this because they're not worried about, you know, at the venture fund level, uh, reallocation of capital or, you know, austerity measures for the sake of austerity measures. You guys have long term strategic capital that you can provide to these portfolio companies and support them along their journeys.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, the last thing I might mention is um, because we have one. Uh, because advance is has been fantastic they're long-term focused we don't have the pressure to deploy capital um, in the way that i think traditional funds do like you know we want to we want to make great investments we want to do um, our target number of deals every year but we don't have to deploy capital so we can get to our next fund we don't have to get markups on investments on paper so we can go market those to outside LPS or outside conversations i think it's uh you know the structure um, has allowed us to do something really pure, which is just uh, find great founders and back them and and be really thoughtful around um, helping them achieve their goals and the visions of their their companies.
0: Amazing. So, you know, we've talked a lot about the fund structure, would love to hear more about the actual investing style. Uh, Could we talk about, you know, what, what types of deals you all invest in, tech sizes, company stages, and so on and so forth?
1: yeah yeah absolutely and so maybe i'll talk about the tactical stuff a a little bit first so um uh, the way it would describe us is is we're almost sort of like we're like late stage growth or private equity in terms of capital concentration meaning um our goal is and we target doing two to four new investments a year um so it's not 10 or 15 investments our mantra is one good deal per person per year. Um, and instead, instead of having as many logos as possible, be able to take meaningful stakes in each one of those businesses, um, we try to lead or co-lead most of the the, um, the financings um, uh, and, and investments that we make. Um, and so it's, it's a much more sort of concentrated high conviction strategy than, than other strategies out there in the market. Um. What that means for us, since we're we're sort of highly concentrated, is we have a lot of flexibility in terms of when we invest in a company, what stage they're at, um, a bunch of these other dynamics. Um, but we try to write initial checks of 10 to 25 million dollars. Um, at that point, we feel like it's enough capital given the number of investments that we're doing a year, where um, where we feel like we're putting enough money to work. Um, at each investment, and our goal, sort of on a yearly basis, is somewhere between 75 and 125 million dollars of capital deployed. Um, from a t- stage perspective, we are not tied down to one stage. We don't have um, we don't have ARR revenue targets on the minimum or the maximum side. We don't have stage requirements. Um, um, but where we end up playing is uh, primarily is is leading. Uh, or co-leading series A, B, or C rounds. That's where that $10 to $25 million check is typically a lead check. Um, um, we can do larger deals if it makes sense. And we we have historically on sort of one-off basis. Um, the only place we won't do and sort of our minimum threshold is we, we won't invest in pre-revenue businesses. And what we typically look for are businesses um, who have generated enough revenue that you see at least initial product market fit or product market fit within the first product or customer vertical. And there are some proof points in in data around um, go to market um, dynamics, go-to-market strategy, customer performance. And every company is a little different, but for us, that's sort of, you know, anywhere between one and $3 million of revenue or ARR run rate on, on the low end, uh, which again um, means that it's probably not a seed round where we're investing. It's probably on the earliest, uh, a series A, where we feel like we've, we see enough data and around sort of the right dynamics for us to um, deploy at least that $10 million um, check.
0: Totally. Totally. So, you know, in terms of the check sizes, in terms of the company stages, we've covered that. Um, Are there any specific sectors that are particularly interesting to you at this time or any deals that you might want to address and and let the audience know uh, to give an example of where you invest?
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, our strategy, given we're a small team, um, you know, we're four people, we're, we're hoping to grow to five um, early this year. Um, We are, we don't have any mandates in terms of spaces, business models we have to invest in and we've got the flexibility if you look at our portfolio we've invested across a lot of different things SaaS business models marketplace business models um, ad tech business models also you know, a bunch of different verticals as well. Um, But what we realized, especially over the last few years is as a small team, it's hard to be in every industry. It's hard to look at everything at once and be able to be a really thoughtful investor who can get in front of the best founders and the best opportunities. And so where we spend, we probably spend 80% of our time each of us focused on one industry. And the idea is um, it, from an outbound, we'll still look at things inbound in a bunch of different industries when they come in from our network or they seem really exciting, but in terms of being proactive and in terms of prioritizing where we spend time, um, um, it's focused on a few different sectors. And the the commonalities of those sectors is they typically are um, large verticals where we feel like we can do a number of non-competitive investments and um, in, They're verticals that have interesting sort of long-term tailwinds that we think we can take advantage of. And and we think that the value of being vertical focused, um, at least with a large portion of our time is we can get into those spaces. We can learn about what matters in the spaces. We can learn about the metrics that matter. And we can also do deals and sort of build our brand within each one of those verticals um, as a fund in a thoughtful manner. Um, the spaces we're we're, in, um, we're primarily focused on right now are are sort of four spaces. One is um, digital health. Two is insure tech. Um, three is applied data systems and platforms um, within the software vertical, um, and the fourth is 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 fintech, um, especially around sort of wealth tech and the democratization of of assets. Um, you know, a quick example. Asif is, um, you know, one of our our investments um, um, uh, at the beginning of COVID was in a business called Headspace in the behavioral health, digital behavioral health, mental health vertical. Um, um, 18 months ago, we merged with Headspace to to create Headspace Health, and and that was us. Um, we had already been spending a lot of time in digital health even before COVID. Saw a lot of the trends of sort of the move to digital um, and to um, online care um, as, as we realize as the cost of care goes up, as there's, you know, in mental health specifically, there's only so many sort of coaches and therapists out there and and access to that care was really, really tough. Um, And and that was one where, um, you know, not, not to go into too much detail, but, um, you know, we're able to form relationships.